Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SubChina. SubChina is the best way to keep on top of the latest news from China in just a few minutes a day through our free email newsletter, our handy smartphone app, or straight from the tap at the website subchina.com. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Guo, and today I'm in Washington, D.C., just a stone's throw from the White House. Joining me from his home in Goldhorn Holler in Nashville, Tennessee, is a man still smiting from losing the male lead in Crazy Rich Asians to that, uh, yeah, despite a stellar audition, I think it's fair to say, Mr. Jeremy Goldhorn. Uh, Jeremy, why did they give it to Henry Golding instead of Jeremy Goldhorn? <laughs> oh, that, that, that one, that's really, you're, you're, you're reaching the bottom of your ability to stretch this joke, Kaiser. I think it may have something to do with my, my face for radio. And also, I'm not usually considered Asian, which I, I thought was kind of the whole point of the film. But All right. Now, enough okay. of the lighthearted uh, stuff. Yeah, way, way more serious now. So, I mean, there is no issue today that demands the attention of anyone who cares about human rights in China more than the mass detention of Uyghurs in the Xinjiang Autonomous Region. Uh, for over a year now, we've been reading reports about what have been termed re-education centers, and now hundreds of thousands, and by some estimates, as many as a million, mostly Uyghur and Kazakh men, who are thought to exhibit characteristics of Islamic extremism, have been taken to these camps with no legal recourse. Uh, apparently, these supposed characteristics of extremism can include just growing a longer beard or, or demonstrating basic Islamic piety, maintaining a strict halal diet, abstaining from alcohol, that sort of thing. Even if half of what is being reported, even if a, a tenth of what is being reported is true, then it's an atrocity. And it reminds me nothing so much as the internment of people of Japanese descent in the United States after Pearl Harbor. I mean, as a, a kind of a Jew, uh, you know, my first thought when I hear about massive camps and, you know, numbers up in the millions obviously goes back uh, to Nazi Germany. Uh, before we start making such comparisons, though, uh, let's just set the scene. We have seen some excellent reporting from Mega Roger Gapalan, who was until recently, uh, when uh, Beijing refused uh, to extend her visa, the BuzzFeed reporter and bureau chief based there. We hope to have her on the show soon. Uh, but her articles are, of course, worth reading, as is the coverage from the Associated Press's Jerry Shi, who spoke to us earlier this year about Xinjiang. There's been great reporting from Josh Chin and others at the Wall Street Journal. And we've seen an extensive report on the camps from the scholar Adrian Zenz at the European School of Culture and Theology in Korntal, Germany, who published in the Jamestown Foundation's China Brief. In the last few months, there has also been an increasing amount of attention being paid to the issue. It has been raised with Beijing by a United Nations panel, and it is now to the point that Chinese officials have felt compelled to break what had either been silence or brusque denial and acknowledge, at least, that there have been detentions in Xinjiang. We're going to continue to bring guests onto the program to talk about this important issue, but today's show isn't going to be specifically about the detentions. Uh, rather, we're going to talk about the Uyghur community in diaspora and its efforts to raise awareness and bring pressure on Beijing over its treatment of Uyghurs in Xinjiang. And joining us to talk about these groups is Nuri Turkel, co-founder and chairman of the Uyghur Human Rights Project, uh, former secretary general and president of the Uyghur American Association, and former legal advisor of the World Uyghur Congress. Nuri was born in Kashgar during the Cultural Revolution and has been a very vocal, very tireless advocate for the rights of Uyghur people. He works as an attorney here in Washington. Uh, Nuri, welcome to Seneca. Thank you, Kaiser and Jeremy, for having me on your show. I really appreciate this opportunity. Uh, we're, we're delighted to have you. Nuri, let's start by talking about your own story, including the remarkable circumstances of your birth. And then perhaps you could also tell us about how your attitudes towards the Chinese state when you were a boy growing up were formed and the relations between the Han and the Uyghurs in Kashgar prior to 1997, um, when, as far as I know, things started to deteriorate sharply. I was born in captivity uh, at the height of a cultural revolution where my 20-year-old mother was taken in uh, when she was six months pregnant with me, uh, mainly because of her father's past uh, political life, being a member of the East Turkestan uh, Republic mm. uh, in 1944 through 49. Uh, the Chinese government viewed that my mother's family 
uh, herself as some sort of political uh, family. So she was taken in. At the same time, my father was sent to labor camp, which is um, four or five hours away from Kashgar. Like a Lao guy kind of Lao guy, yes. And my mom was in Lao Jiao. Uh, my father was in Lao guy. So after she was taken in, she was uh, subject to various forms of uh, physical and uh, verbal abuses. Someone who was born and raised in a very conservative Uyghur family uh, could not bear that uh, abuse, uh, particularly uh, name-calling and insulting the baby in her body uh, mm. that she's carrying. And as she was uh, injured during that time, uh, she broke her ankle and sitting bone. And she was put on cast. Uh, three months later, she delivered me in cast. And we were released about five months later. I was having very serious health issues because of uh, calcium deficiency and lack of exposure to natural light. Um, and I was very weird-looking kid with a huge head. Uh, even at some point, my grandfather told my mom, please don't let your son be seen. Otherwise, people will be very judgmental and it will hurt your feeling. So, Just for the record, he, he looks very normal <laughs> and very handsome now, I must say. Thank you. Uh, people thought that I would, I would never survive. Okay. So after we released, my dad was still in Laojo, uh, educate, uh, labor camp, and he, was, uh, he lost his job. He's one of the first generation uh, graduates from the Xinjiang University. Mm. Uh, he's originally from the northern part of the country uh, called uh, Ulja. He was sent to Kashgar uh, for improving education in the Kashgar education system. And yet he was uh, not only expelled, but also sent to a, a labor camp, mainly because of him having two uh, cousins in the Soviet Union and also his affiliation with my mother's family. And then after he was released, my mom was the main breadwinner. She was able to return to work and supported my dad and myself. And then in 1978, my dad's employment was restored. So basically, he was jobless for eight years. Right. And then um, my brother was born. And because of this family history, because of this torturous experience my young mother had, because of her family background and political belief, I was raised to love the Uyghur people. I was raised to appreciate the Uyghur culture. I was reminded of my parents' better history simply because of who they married and what kind of relatives did they have. During my education years in Kashgar, Rimji, and Xi'an, I always maintained very strong Uyghur identity. I was educational Uyghur educational system uh, through high school, and then I went to study in China with the Chinese uh, students. So I grew up speaking both uh, Chinese and Uyghur, and I thought that learning the language is very helpful in order to be able to uh, not only survive but thrive in Chinese society. Right, right, right. And what were your attitudes by the time you were in, say, university toward the party state, and how did they shift as you went through college and went abroad? This was, uh, I went to university in late 80s and early 90s. Mm. This was a, a, a political transformation period in China. Uh, sure this was. was yeah. yeah, this was right after the Tiananmen Square pro-democracy movement and opening of China. So the Chinese government was relatively flexible in their uh, minority policies. I was one of those hand-picked uh, Uyghur students to study in inland Chinese university. It is unthinkable today, but then at least the university professors and students at, on campus treated us very well. Actually, some, in, in some instances, they treated like a foreigners. That's good to hear. I mean, not that you, know, you should have been treated differently at all, but that, that they were treating you well. It makes me suggest that maybe there is still a reserve somewhere in, in the Chinese population of, of empathy or even sympathy for, for minority nationalities. The reason being, Kaiser, if I may, uh, the government uh, was not as aggressive as today to portray right. the Uyghurs as some sort of threat to the society, ungrateful minority, or, you know, extremist or 
or separatists or terrorists for that matter, then they portrayed us as some sort of happy minority. Right. The, the Chinese students were curious. You know, they like to make friends with us. Uh, you know, joining us in some Uyghur parties, even. You know, uh, so stuff like that it was very casual, like normal relationship. I thought that we had uh, when I was a college student in inland China. And this was in Xi'an at, at Xi'an Jiao Tong, or no? It was, this was a uh, university on the suburb of uh, Xi'an called uh, Northwestern Agricultural University. Oh, now okay, change okay. it to a Northwestern A and F University. Ah, I see. And were there a number of Uyghur students there? There were about thirty in my class, so about one hundred twenty. Uh, students all together, give and, and take. Things really started to change, though. You said, you know, this this period of flexibility and minority policy. It really, at least toward the Uyghurs, it started to change very much in 1997. Is that is that correct? Am I correct in identifying that as a major inflection point? I actually sensed the change after the collapse of the Soviet Union in my uh-huh. uh, senior years in college. So we ha- we start seeing uh, independent Turkic states on the other side of Uyghur's homeland, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Uzbekistan. And then in the mid-90s, uh, the Chinese uh, government get paranoid yeah. that they didn't want to have the uh, Soviet-style uh, collapse. And, and and seeing the Uyghurs demanding political freedom like the uh, their siblings on the other side of the border. So they started what's called a yenda. Uh, the strike, strike hard, hard campaign. Right. And this also has something to do with uh, the Baran uh, uprising that took place in uh, in an area close to Kashgar. Can you, can you give us the rough... I, I'm not familiar with that uprising. There was an uprising uh, led by some religious figures uh, demanding uh, initially a religious freedom, and then it turned into a violent clash with the Chinese military. And what year was that, Nuri? In in 1990s. Okay. In early 1990s. In early 90s, I see. Uh, and then you know, other inflection points, though. I mean, so in 97, we're familiar with um, a lot of the, the, the problems that happened then. September 11th, though, and the, the whole global war on terror, another inflection point, maybe? That uh, 9-11... Uh, has changed uh, the political landscape dramatically. Mm. As we recall, uh, uh, by doing a simple research or by doing a simple, you can uh, find out by doing a simple research that few weeks before 9-11, a Chinese government held a press conference claiming that Xinjiang is a safe place for investment and there's no violence. And then weeks after 9-11, that uh, position changed dramatically, and the Chinese government officially claimed that China also a victim of terrorism. Right. So 9-11, uh, as has been reported by various NGOs and government entities and uh, media organizations, have given the Chinese government a golden opportunity to tap into people's fear and and try to be part of the U.S.-led global war on terrorism that I have an issue with. I mean, that particular terminology in yeah, itself of is somewhat problematic. And we'll, we'll talk more about that. Um, and then, of course, 2009 uh, in Urumqi and then, of course, in other parts of Xinjiang as well. Uh, that was another major inflection point that we'll get into a little bit more. But uh, do these points sort of match up with inflection points in your own development as an activist? Yes, um, I initially thought that uh, that Uyghurs always uh, mistreated, uh, discriminated against, you know, socially, politically, but I never thought that it will reach to the level that we are seeing today. That right. has uh, that had have had very deep impact in my personal and pro- professional life. I, I must I must add that the ethnic tension, the political repression, has already been there, but it had gotten worse over time as starting mid-90s and 2001, 2009, 2016. And now what we're seeing is the probably the darkest uh, period mm. in Uyghur history. A lot of this is rooted really kind of in, in, in basic uh, Han Chinese chauvinism of racist attitudes toward Uyghurs, who I think a lot of people who've lived in China are, are familiar with. They've seen sort of the stereotypes uh, that that many Chinese in, in cities have toward Uyghurs. Could you talk about uh, what those are uh, and your own personal experience maybe of, of some of that kind of stereotyping? I think it has a lot to do with how the government portrays the Uyghurs. Um, mm. If you, you know, in China, there's no, uh, 
political freedom for the most part. When you live in a society that we rely on Chinese our government propaganda, then you, you have a tendency of believing. And oftentimes I notice and have sensed that the Chinese people always mixed up criticizing the government versus criticizing the Chinese people. Yes. Two different things. So when the Chinese government criticize something that is in the interest of the Han Chinese people, they applaud. But if they criticize, being criticized, uh, including the people of China, they immediately turn on, turn on and become, a, a, it takes a ra racist position. I, 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 I like to believe that um, the Chinese people are making a terrible mistake by not paying attention to this issue. Because eventually what the Uyghurs are going through will be expanded to the other uh, regions in China. I see that the Chinese government using Uyghurs' homeland and Uyghur people as a laboratory to create a total uh, surveillance state, uh, which eventually will be Orwellian society on steroids. Nuri, um, the situation in uh, for Uyghurs has been grim for some time, uh, but now, as you say, it, it has reached this extraordinary point, both in terms of you know what is happening, but also the the scale, the number of people that are involved now. And at this critical time, you seem to be emerging as the leading voice among Uyghurs in the West for your cause. Um, is that true? And how do you feel about this role? Is this something that you actively sought? I, I've um, I've involved uh, in the Uyghur um, advocacy work in both personal and, and official capacity since 2002. Um, at, at a very young age, I got elected as the president of the Uyghur American Association and also uh, co-founded the, the UHRP, which is uh, basically research and documentation arm of the Uyghur advocacy work that has been uh, produced a tremendous amount of um, uh, public reports uh, in the last 14 years. And also on my personal level, I believe that as a free person, it's my moral obligation to speak out. I think this, I cannot think of any a better way to utilize my freedom, my education, my experience to tell the truth. You just need to be brave enough and, and tell the truth. This is how I feel about this work that I do proudly in uh, advocating Uyghur rights. Uyghur people are voiceless, and we need more people in the free world to speak out on their behalf. Because, you know, if you don't speak out, the silence is almost as bad as, as committing any type of atrocities. So uh, I, I feel honored uh, and, and obligated to be a voice for a millions of uh, Uyghur people back home. As you said, that requires quite a bit of bravery, and, and I think we're all in, in great admiration of that bravery. Uh, it comes at significant personal cost, too. Uh, I know that your, your brother actually married a daughter of the well-known Uyghur activist Rabia Kadir, so I guess she's your brother's mother-in-law. When, uh, when they got married, uh, things, bad things happened to your family as a result of, of that marriage, right? Can you, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, as we discussed, my mother and I have a very special bond because of the way that she brought me to this world. Um, as I recall in my childhood years, my mother always said, you know, I pray to God to uh, uh, allow me to live long enough to see you uh, getting married, and I want to hold your grand, uh, uh, children. So with that desire, uh, my mother was stopped attending, were prevented from attending not only my wedding in uh, October 2007 in Turkey, and also my we brother's wedding in Washington in July 20, uh, 2007, same year, simply because my brother was um, marrying uh, one of China's most hated uh, Uyghur's uh, daughter. And also I was uh, involved in Uyghur human rights activities, uh, advocacy work. So by guilt, by association, Chinese government effectively punished and uh, caused a mental anguish, preventing my parents to attend two of their children's uh, wedding. That could be one of the most important days uh, in my life, in my brother's life. Very sorry to hear that. Nuri, can you talk about your parents now? What, what is the situation now? My parents are going through a very difficult time, both uh, emotionally and health-wise. Uh, health uh, my dad suffers um, early uh, stage of dementia. Uh, he's 79, a retired university professor. 
And my mother is a, a former state employee. She's only 67, but she's been suffering uh, a severe form of uh, anxiety disorder. Mm. I have not seen my mother since my law school graduation in 2004. Uh, my parents were uh, prevented leaving the country uh, despite very high-level involvement a request by uh, senior U.S. government officials, both at the White House, the state, and also in the Congress. This effort started about nine years ago when Obama was a president, and we made, made no progress. The last thing I know was uh, in November 2017, during President Trump's visit to China, my parents' name were given to the Chinese as one of the concerned uh, Chinese citizens for the United States government. Because of this internet or communication blackout, I am not in a position to find out their mental state, uh, well-being, other than just to hear their voice occasionally. My dad and mom, he, they have been going in and out of the hospital uh, quite frequently lately. Mm. And, I, you know, it, it makes you feel powerless and weak and somewhat guilty for not being able to give them the necessary support when they were lonely in the hospital. I might add, they have four children. Uh, none of them are Chinese citizen. And uh, we're not in a position to be there when they needed us the most. And are, also, are I'm, you able to to travel to China? Is that out of the question? I have not been uh, traveled to China since my last departure, exactly twenty three years ago. And um, you've applied for a visa? And no, never... I did not. Okay. I, I did not try because I didn't want to uh, subject myself yeah. to uh, uh, harassments um, or even uh, unthinkable things uh, if I were happened to be on Chinese soil. And and what about harassment here in the United States? Have you experienced anything by way of pressure from the embassy here? I mean, you live here in D.C. Have you had any kind of, uh, to, your, to your knowledge, any kind of, of harassment or or, set, or uh, troubles with that originate from Beijing? There's no direct harassment, but the indirect uh, threats have been made. Uh, but they have used their informants or people collaborate with the Chinese to damage my public image or professional standing in different occasions. But there has not been a direct threat against me by the Chinese government. Touch wood. Nuri, let's talk about the Uyghur Human Rights Project, as well as some of the other organizations in the Uyghur diaspora. Uh, what are the main active groups right now? Uh, what are the goals of the different groups? And are there differences between these goals? There are three major organizations uh, that you see uh, in public today. The first one, the, the largest one, is the World Uyghur Congress. Uh, World Uyghur Congress is based in Munich, Germany. Uh, current president is Dolkan Asa, a former student leader uh, in 1988 uh, student movement in uh, Urumqi, a year before the one in Beijing. And the former president is Rabia Kader. She's currently a special leader for the organization. Uh, World Uyghur Congress was founded in 2004 in Munich. Uh, since 2006, it receives a grant from the National Endowment for Democracy for democratic leadership training projects that they undertake twice a year uh, in various countries, uh, bringing in uh, young Uyghur activists and leaders and train them to be more uh, effective advocates. And World Uyghur Congress is the most well-known organization and also uh, have been the main target for Chinese attacks. The Chinese government has done it uh, in different ways. One, by putting a current president on the Interpol list, preventing him from travel around the world. He was actually detained a couple of times in different places, uh, Italy, North Korea, even here in Washington at the airport. The U.S. government issued him 10 years of visa. And this is the gentleman who lost his mother in a concentration camp uh, a few months ago. And also, um, the Chinese government also uh, uses its diplomatic and economic influence to prevent uh, World Uyghur Congress to engage in political activities, namely Turkey. The, the World Uyghur Congress leadership had not been able to travel to Turkey except for a couple of them. Ms. Kadir cannot travel, Dolkan Isa cannot travel, one other gentleman who is also one of the senior leaders in the organization cannot go to Turkey. Um, and then uh, Chinese government, as you have been reading on the paper, uh, been very active uh, discrediting, trashing the World Uyghur Congress at UN forums. Uh, thanks to European Union, Germany, and the world, uh, the United States government, the UN presence and, and involvement for the World Uyghur Congress have been preserved. 
And the Uyghur American Association, the second largest uh, well-known organization uh, based in Washington, D.C. Which you were a co-founder. I served as secretary general and the, uh, president uh, from 2002 through 2006. Mm-hmm. Uyghur American Association was founded by Uyghur intellectuals in 1998. Nice. It's been good 20 years since its founding. It is a, a, a community organization, a political organization at organizes uh, various events for the community, the protests, and uh, reaching out to members of Congress, that sort of, uh, you know, typical um, immigrant community activities. But Uyghur Human Rights Project that I co-founded in 2004 uh, undertakes research and documentation projects, uh, uh, programmatic and uh, the issue-specific, which is also funded by the NED. So they, they, in, in summary, there are three organizations. All of them have very good relationship with various governments, including our own government here in the United States. All of the three organizations aim to work to achieve the Uyghur, uh, Uyghurs in China uh, or East Turkestan to achieve their right to self-determination through peaceful and democratic means. So any of the claims that the Chinese government have been making against the World Group Congress or its leadership does not have any evidentiary backing. They are peaceful. All three organizations are very peaceful. They have been uh, engaging various governments. That's why they were able to establish credibility and visibility and recognition, most importantly. You're very upfront about the fact that your organizations are funded by the NED, which is, of course, the boogeyman for China. Uh, China see, hears these letters, NED, the National Endowment for Democracy, and goes crazy. Uh, anything that, that is touched by the NED is necessarily you know, dedicated to, to the violent overthrow of, or the nonviolent overthrow of uh, Chinese authoritarian uh, the government. <laughs> is Has this been a double-edged sword for you? Does this prevent you in some way from gaining sympathy from uh, Chinese who might otherwise be interested in, in, in the Uyghur cause? That is an interesting question. Yes, I have read uh, and heard uh, link uh, statements and reports uh, linking NED to, to some dark side of the U.S. government. Um, and, and U.S. government is picking up uh, some organization uh, through NED uh, to, you know, destabilize China or tarnish China's government's image in, in public arena. But it does not hold any water. So uh, we're very pleased, you know, as a taxpayer, I'm, I'm very pleased that my tax dollars are going to some legitimate cause and legitimate organizations. Um, without NED support, Kaiser, I must say, we were not able to uh, come to a point to be recognized uh, as a uh, legitimate voice for the Uyghur people. The UHRP produced and World Uyghur Congress produced reports Pro, uh, issue specific reports have been cited not only by um, various media organization but also uh, State Department's annual human rights reports. Mm-hmm. That that speaks volume. It, it's kind of a, you know a, 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 a collaborated effort. If the World Group Congress or the UHRP did not uh, have the type of legitimate professional work products then no one would be uh, listening. So this couldn't be done without any of these support. So I'm personally very grateful. Let's change topics very quickly here. Uh, you've done quite a bit of work on the Guantanamo Uyghurs. Uh, for those of our listeners who aren't familiar with who they are and you know what ended up happening to them, how they ended up in Guantanamo, uh, could you give us an overview of this? This Guantanamo work that I was able to be part of was uh, one of the best things that ever happened to me professionally. Mm. I could not think of a better way to utilize my educational legal skills, uh, cultural background, language skills, other than my involvement. Uh, back in, in 2004, 2005, uh, Center for Constitutional Rights managed to get hold of some names through FOIA request. And those names showed some Uyghur names, allegedly from China. And uh, the same organization recruited some lawyers to represent them in a habeas petition. That's how I got to know uh, or get involved in the project. Uh, my These lo- were fighters who had been captured on uh, battlefields in Afghanistan. Right. right. That's what the uh, the Chinese government alleges, and also the, that's what was the thinking 
in uh, the Bush administration's detention of them and bringing them to Guantanamo. They initially, you know, there's various different stories about their background. Some told us directly or through interrogation that they were in Central Asian countries because of the SEO, Shanghai Cooperation Organization. They could not stay, so they end up being in this lawless land that didn't require visa or passport, which is Afghanistan. And some of them tell us that they were in a some Uyghur village. Uh, nonetheless, uh, they were not captured, in, most of them not captured in a battlefield. They mm. were sold to the U.S. military by Pakistani bounty hunters, $5,000 per person. There are only few of them were, were arrested or uh, captured in the northern part of Afghanistan. But the vast majority of them were uh, picked up by bounty hunters. So initially, the U.S. government thinking was they may have some intelligence value. It turned out not to be the case. And they transferred them to Guantanamo and tried to find a home for them, thinking that if any of those guys were able to find a home somewhere, it will uh, prime the pump uh, and uh, open up some doors for others who are no longer enemy combatant. That's the term that the government used. So the Uyghur case, this 22 guys case, went all the way to the Supreme Court, uh, started in the district court in Washington, during the Bush administration years and then Obama's first year because uh, people like Eric Holder, Greg Craig, uh, and Ambassador Freed, very adamant about uh, reselling the Uyghurs mm. initially in Virginia. But uh, one of our traditional allies, Frank Wolf, introduced a legislation called Keep the Terrorists Out of America Act that kind of killed the uh, uh, process. And then they end up being in Bermuda. Frank Just Wolf, senator from Virginia. He was congressman. From congressman from Virginia. Yeah, right. he, he, and he was ordinarily, like you said, uh, very, very, well, he was quite anti-China. Uh, At the same time, very sympathetic to the Uyghur, Uyghur human rights work. Yeah, you weren't able to persuade him that, that this was... Impossible. Uh, not only us, uh, some of his congressional colleagues uh, huh. were unable to persuade him. So with that deal not going through or falling to the cracks, uh, the Obama administration were managed to, uh, it were able to resettle four guys in uh, Bermuda. Just a couple of days ago, they were granted citizenship, which is a good news. So all of them are gone, and most of them are in Turkey and some parts of Europe. So they're starting to restart their lives. You know, I, have, I like to highlight something very important. Despite how they are labeled by the Chinese government, despite how they were perceived by the United States government, since they're being released as early as 2005, none of them, none of them have done anything silly, if not stupid. They've been trying to reestablish their lives get married, starting business. If you go to Tirana, Albania, you'll probably uh, find a couple of Uyghur restaurants <laughs> run by former Guantanamo detainees. Same, same is true in Istanbul. I probably won't be going to Tirana, Albania, but th thanks. I mean, it's good to know that there's good Uyghur food there. <laughs> Uri, we you mentioned earlier the connection between the so-called global war on terror and uh, what's happening in Xinjiang today. Um, I'd like to talk a little bit about anti-Islamicism, uh, Islamophobia in the West and in the United States, um, and how it's used as cover by Beijing for its aggressive moves in Xinjiang. And if you could also maybe uh, talk about what you know about rising Islamophobia in China itself, and if you see this as being a factor in what's going on uh, in Xinjiang right now. I see two problems, uh, Jeremy. One is the Uyghurs happen to be wrong type of Muslim, and then China appeared to be the wrong type of adversary for any Muslim countries or Muslim people uh, to even show sympathy publicly. It is mind-boggling that to this day, since the current uh, nightmare started about 18 months ago, no Muslim countries, no Muslim leader came out even criticize the Chinese government the slightest. Traditionally, Turkish government has been very, very vocal to the extent aggressive in back in 2009. As you know that the Turkey is not a country that you can casually use the word genocide. The Turkish pr uh, prime minister then... Uh, because of Armenia in 1915. Yeah, because of their own history. The Erdogan, uh, President Erdogan, then uh, prime minister, said publicly that there's no other way to see it other than likening it to genocide in public. 
in response to July 5 unrest in Rimchi. And the Chinese government saw this as uh, as some sort of threat because in Turkey, the Uyghur situation is very, very unique. The Turkish kids growing up learning about the Uyghurs as their ancestors. In order to change the Turkish mindset, uh, you have to change their textbooks. It's impossible. Pre-Ottoman history is pretty much the Uyghur history in Turkey. So because of this enormous public support, enormous sympathy, uh, the Chinese government very is very concerned. So what they did is uh, try to work uh, with Erdogan uh, administration, uh, which was also trying to find a friends after the problems starting in 2014 and their inability to join the EU and deteriorating relationship with the United States. So Erdogan find an ally in Putin and Xi Jinping. So because of this uh, strange bedfellow-like relationship, the Chinese government were able to convince Erdogan uh, and his uh, government to agree on an um, extradition treaty, which mm. is very rare, and also uh, made the Turkish foreign minister to say in public that Turkish government will not allow any anti-China activities or propaganda on their soil. So that is the beginning of silence in the Turkish government's end. So the reason that the Muslim world is not speaking is partly because of Erdogan. If Erdogan claimed to be the leader of a Muslim world, or voice for uh, uh, Muslim people... Especially for Turkic people. Yeah, he, spoke, he has spoken about the Sudanese, he has spoken out about uh, the uh, Rohingya Muslims... And yet, when it comes to the Uyghurs, he's, he's dead silent. So, you know, the other Muslim countries need to look at either Erdogan or Western uh, allies to find their voice. That has not happened. And in China, because of China's government's portrayal of Islam as some sort of mental disease, uh, in a similar way that they did with the Falun Gong in much less degree, some good Chinese people, in my mind, believe in Chinese government's rhetoric that Islam is a bad thing and it's, it might be a threat to their society. So I can, I can relate lack of or no interest in the Uyghur suffering among the fair-minded Chinese and also growing uh, Islamophobia among a general public in China. It's somewhat related, related. I often look at news stories that are written about Xinjiang and about China's crackdown on, on uh, so-called Islamic extremism and separatism uh, and radical Islamism. And uh, often I see right-wingers underneath Americans who, because of their own Islamophobia, say, oh, good, this is what China, this is what countries should do. They should, you know, ban Islam. Uh, I have this sense that growing Islamophobia here in, in Trump's United States and, you know, encouraged, abetted by the president himself with his, you know, travel bans and all this, uh, is undermining support uh, certainly from the administration, but even more broadly in the American public for the Uyghur cause. Is that your sense? I I can relate the two. I actually, I have written about this on uh, China File. Um, you, if you you know, timing is everything in politics. Um, with Trump coming to power, Xi Jinping making himself a president for life, and this anti-Muslim rhetoric and sliding from uh, democratic principles and walking away from the leadership in the world, I think in a way encouraged the Chinese government. Uh, it, it, it does not, I yes. would not claim that it will go hand in hand, but uh, this shining city on a hill is losing that stature. So what moral ground would you have to criticize someone else when you were doing something very similar, if not the same? So I think with with the current administration's initial approach, some of the rhetoric plotted by President Trump's uh, supporters with respect to Islam is not really helping the United States diplomatic engagement. One example, Kaiser, you will like this. Uh, not too long ago, uh, Secretary Pompeo called on a ministerial international religious freedom. There are about 60 countries in attendance. Mm -hmm. Only... United States, UK, Canada, and Kosovo signed a joint declaration condemning Chinese treatment of Chinese Christians, Uyghur Muslims, and Tibetan Muslims. That is very telling. If the United States cannot get a 10 out of 60 participants in such a big uh, international conference, then 
then it's a problem. It's a, sign of something, it's a yeah. problem. It is a serious problem. And also the Chinese government is taking this as an opportunity. And, you know, if you don't have a moral authority, you are not in the position to ask anyone to do anything better than you could not. Right. Uh, Nuri, I, I've often gotten the sense that, and I think most people probably agree, that there's a lot more popular sympathy here in the West for Tibet than there is for Xinjiang. Uh, I think this was certainly the case even before all the rhetoric on the war on terror and on this, you know, anti-Islamic sentiment had been stirred up uh, by the uh, sitting president. Uh, Jim Millward actually once related a remark that he attributes to a Uyghur activist. I don't think it was you. Maybe it was. But uh, he said the Tibetans are pandas. They're cute and they're cuddly, uh, while the Uyghurs are camels. Uh, Is this still the case, do you think, or has this been changing now? I think that has changed. In the past, we admired the Tibetans when they were getting so much publicity. Uh, in politics, some bad publicity can be turned into your advantage. You know, no crisis should be wasted. This is a common terminology that we hear. I think the current political environment in China has given an opportunity for the Uyghur's uh, voice to be heard. I know it's, it's a horrible uh, situation. It's horrifying situation. It's mind-boggling situation. At the same time, with all this hoplala uh, or bad publicity that the Uyghurs gain in the international political environment, since 9-11, since the war in Syria, it was very difficult for Uyghurs to advance their cause. Because mm. whenever you go, the, the response is like, okay, there's some violent incidents uh, in Kunming or Beijing or Urumqi. How do you explain? And the Chinese government has a legitimate reason. And now how can you, how can you justify locking up that many people in a no-right zone? So this in of itself has given an opportunity for the Uyghur activists, Uyghur organizations. And if we, can, we are seeing some effect uh, of that effort. So, you know, this is a critical movement in the Uyghur history. This is a terrible crisis, humanitarian crisis, as uh, been uh, portrayed by some of the U.S. um, lawmakers. But at the same time, I think this put the Uyghur issue on the international map. Right. You can tell by just flipping through the uh, Google News every day, right and left, uh, uh, commentators from the right, from the left, Everybody is writing about it. So this this is, in a way, better publicity for the Uyghurs. Because here's why. The Uyghur issue has been likened to some dark chapters in the human history. Right. Stalin's gulag, South African apartheid, uh, uh, Hitler's concentration camps, America's Japanese internment camps, everybody, even Jim Crow. Everybody's talking about some ugly chapters, comparing it to some ugly chapters in human history, which is a good thing in my mind. How do you get people's attention? Again, this has to be translated into new real action. The politicians are not showing a political will because of this entrapment in the Chinese economic influence. But in, in, a, uh, in a public arena, I think Uyghurs have gained enormous uh, attraction and sympathy just by looking at the public statements being made. And one other example, Kaiser, you know how much effective the Chinese government has been uh, self-censoring you American uh, scholars. Sure. I never thought that the American uh, scholars specialize in the Uyghur issues would issue a joint letter sympathizing with the Uyghur situation. That is a very telling example how the landscape has changed. And right. most, some of the most effective messages have been put out by American experts. And there for have example, been two now. There's the Darren Byler letter, and then there's. And then the Jim. Jim uh, for example, Jim Milward says something that people never th- said. He said specifically in one of his public speeches whatever the Chinese government claim, paraphrasing, of course, uh, whatever that they try to justify cannot. Uh, cannot be related to Chinese government's uh, security concern. It's not about finding against terrorism anymore. This is powerful. This has been quoted. Uh, and he has already related uh, Uyghur issues to uh, ordinary people's life 
by laying out all the surveillance apparatus the Chinese set up. Ryan Thum, uh, one of the young uh, historians in the American uh, academic world, sure, have been writing and have been saying, actually he did a, a fantastic piece in Foreign Policy magazine. Yeah, so there's right. a awakening. And now I think that uh, I think the Tibetans probably feel like we should get that kind of uh, publicity as well. Um, Can I ask, Nuri, you've, you've described a difference in the approach uh, that Tibet activists and Uyghur activists have taken, if I'm not mistaken, uh, that the Tibetan activists tend to take a more grassroots approach, whereas the Uyghurs, it's more kind of top-down organization. If that is a correct characterization of what you've said, could you explain the strategy and, and why you've adapted it and how it may, may change now that your cause has the limelight? We initially thought this is an excellent question. Uh, we initially, we people always said, "Oh, Uyghurs don't have Dalai Lama." That's not. That's why people don't know the Uyghurs. It's not true. The Uyghur issue is um, is uh, is by design uh, have been uh, a, a t- uh, taken a top down approach simply because nine eleven. Right. So when you when the Chinese talk about the Uyghurs as a whole as being threat or terrorist, you have to counter that claim. So in order to do that, you have to deal with the elites in the society, the media, academia, politicians, even as we discussed earlier, the Uyghur case has been discussed widely in the United States federal courts all the way to the Supreme Court. So when when the um, legal scholars, influential uh, public opinion leaders, uh, members of Congress, even presidents start telling even jokingly about the Uyghur stories, that will get attention in Amer- amount American elites. Obama was making jokes about the Uyghurs in in Palau. A lot of people feel offended, but where where some of the Uyghurs had actually been temporarily settled in settled, Palau. Right. So so top down approach was by design uh, and strategic way of advocating the Uyghur rights. Because you know, let's face it, it's very difficult in the post nine eleven world. How would you get? Uh, public sympathy for a Muslim people, right? Uh, who are who who are who is under the control of this economic giant uh, that has intimate economic and trade relationship with the United States and elsewhere. So it's impossible. So you have to reach out to the elites. I yeah. think it has been working out very well. Yeah, I think that that approach makes a lot of sense to me. Uh, it seems to me that there are many more Uyghurs outside of China these days who are suddenly willing to talk to the press about what's happening to their fellow Uyghurs in China, even willing to be quoted by name and talk about their family uh, in, in Xinjiang. What do you think is behind this? Is this something that the UHRP has been pushing? Have you been pushing people to engage with the media more? This has been a multifaceted approach um, in on an individual level and organizational level uh, to encourage people to be brave. Again, uh, being so the, the enormity of the current atrocity. Yeah, yeah. and then also people starting to realize, Kaiser, what more, what worse could it be? What do they got to lose? Right. What, what more can they do to us? Yeah, and, and you know, um, and, and the Chinese government has been so effective. Uh, they've been not only harassing uh, or denying passport renewal application of their own citizens living overseas, they're affecting uh, the citizens of Europe and, and North America, Australia. You know, they can. It has only worked so far, but more people are coming out and and testifying actually on Facebook, almost every day, uh, real stories, pictures of those loved ones being detained in concentration camps. It's been powerful. When you, you know, I, I, I I've seen, I've seen a quite a few already in the last two weeks. UN, UHRP is documenting all of this. UHRP right? and the World Uyghur Congress is documenting. Great. Uh, and this will be eventually a report. And when this will be uh, eventually uh, uh, evidence for governments, uh, media organizations, or NGOs requesting for evidence. Nuri, can I ask you about the East Turkestan Islamic Movement or Turkestan uh, Islamic Party? Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think in the past, um, you've, you, organizations that you've been associated with have denied or at least strongly questioned the existence of these organizations, uh, which the Chinese government calls uh, terrorist organizations. Is Is that still the case? And how does the fact that some Uyghurs, uh, we seem to have, 
uh, confirmation have joined Islamist groups in Waziristan or in Syria. Does that affect the work of the World Uyghur Congress or the UHRP? I, I have to make this very clear that I, I personally believe that um, there were such organizations uh, exist. Not at the scale that some of the security companies, uh, some of the um, organization tracking terrorist activities around the world to portray some sort of, you know, organization with the org chart, uh, chain of command. Exaggeration has been out there. There have been, their existence and influence have been largely exaggerated. And also one other factor that helped with that kind of false image or perception is back in the early period of Bush administration in order to get at least Chinese acquiescence for invading Iraq. The Bush administration uh, and Chinese government managed to or agreed upon uh, two things. One, uh, designate East Turkestan Islamic Movement, ETIM, as a terrorist organization, which expired in my uh, in my understanding. Uh, it was designated for a certain period of time. And then, uh, two, allow the Chinese uh, interrogators to come to Guantanamo to interrogate Uyghur detainees. Did that happen? Yes, it happened. Hmm. So the back then, the argument was by U.S. Congress you allow the Chinese interrogators to come to Guantanamo and, and you don't even allow us to go to talk to them. So there was some irony there. So so those organizations, uh, both ETIM or TIP, I believe uh, were a real organization, but their existence, uh, their power, influence, and affiliation, most importantly, are exaggerated or been propagated without any uh, evidentiary uh, support. Thanks. That's actually a very, very good good statement of your position. Now, maybe a more difficult question about your attitude toward Rubia Kadir, who's a very controversial figure. Uh, on the one hand, she may still be the best-known leader in the Uyghur diaspora, probably is. I think a lot of us were dismayed, though, and, and felt she had really undermined the cause when she was, for instance, uh, traveling to Japan and decided to visit the Yasukuni Shrine, where many Class A war criminals are, are interred. Uh, what did your organization say about that, and how do you personally feel about about her? I, I think she's a, is a tremendous um, individual. As you know, as your listeners may know, that she was uh, actually promoted by the Chinese government initially as yeah. a model citizen. Yeah, and she also served very in, wealthy from, yeah, from she, business uh, in China. Right? She she was uh, uh, believed to be one of the top wealthiest people uh, in China before she got arrested in the late 90s. And also she served in a rubber stamp uh, National People's Congress as a representative for the Uyghur people. That's her background. Uh, the Uyghur people revere her because of her uh, willingness to speak out by using her influence in the Chinese society and her philanthropist work, humanitarian work. But after she was detained and released into the United States, you know, all politicians make mistakes. I think that going to the shrine is one of her mistakes uh, that she personally acknowledged. And let's not forget that she is not fluent in any foreign language. And also, I know that it cannot be an excuse, but uh, I think that some Japanese folks uh, manipulated her. I, 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 you know, it happens anywhere when sure. you when you don't know the background of the people that you're dealing with, you can be vulnerable. So you have to be vigilant about the people that you associate with. I, but I she, think that happens to foreign uh, foreign uh, dissidents in in Washington D.C. who get co-opted by think tanks of various political persuasions who may not actually have their best interests at heart. Yeah, I'm thinking of Chen Guangcheng. Yeah, exactly. You know, when you, you know, Chen Guangcheng, Wei Jinsheng, Rabia Kader all have made a similar type of, uh, you know, uh, milit- political missteps. But, you know, she has not lo- lost her stature in the Uyghur uh, movement. She still uh, is, is, is the face of the Uyghur suffering. Okay. Uh, her 20-some family members serving in, uh, have been detained. Um, her two sons, uh, individually uh, served prison time uh, before the current saga started. So she is currently the leader of the uh, special leader of the World Group Congress. It's still a very powerful voice. and But she has yielded the presidency to a younger generation last November, which is very admirable. 
Nuri, I think it's a good point to ask you uh, how you have navigated the politics here in the United States. Um, it strikes me that much of the support you've gotten has come from political conservatives like Marco Rubio and Chris Smith, as well as, as, well as other old school Cold Warrior types or their new incarnations, the anti-Castro folks, more generically, you know, anti-Reds. It seems like you've gotten less traction with Democrats who used to be more ardent champions of human rights. How do you diagnose this situation and how are you responding to it? Uh, from my uh, own political advocacy work, um, I realized that uh, American people are generally very uh, 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 interested in oppressed people's uh, stories. Uh, I think it's an American gene um, and DNA. Um, especially, and I find it quite uh, helpful actually talking to people who have experienced similar uh, suffering uh, in the U.S. Congress. Uh, uh, and also what I, I find one of the things most helpful is to publish editorials. Um, I personally have written uh, a few. And also um, navigating Congress is, I find it to be the most important thing, in, um, especially in the current uh, toxic political environment. Because the administration side always either timid or very cautious or show a, a unwilling to show a political will because of the ongoing uh, engagement with China. But on the Congress, it's a little different. The con congressional uh, offices have been very helpful in reaching out, in a way, requesting the administration to take certain steps. There's nothing tangible as the way that have, been, uh, have the Tibetans were successfully able to do in the U.S. Congress, such as Tibetan Policy Act. But the, the resolutions, uh, congressional hearings, the letters, uh, in fact, today, uh, 17 members of Congress from both sides of the political spectrum wrote to uh, Secretaries uh, Pompeo Minici, the Treasury Secretary, to request them to implement Magnitsky Act. So the global Magnitsky, global Magnitsky right? Act. Um, United States Congress could actually do more. Uh, one of the things that they could do is appropriate some funds through annual defense bill to help with the Uyghur people uh, to understand what violence means. So this is actually in the United States government interest to fight against this ideology. And ironically, the United States Congress or the administration have been a leader in the Uyghur struggle, uh, despite a public perception in the Muslim world that, you know, this uh, government is in crusade against Islam, whereas the others who have a direct interest in the Muslim uh, people's uh, lives have not spoken out. So I applaud the uh, United States Congress for whatever reason uh, that they are uh, being active and, and vocal. But on the Democratic side, my personal thinking is that they may have been silent because of the business interests in their districts. For example, CECC has two California uh, members or commissioners but they have not spoken out. As you guys know, the Chinese government has been very uh, skillful in lobbying the United States government. They don't go to the administration oftentimes, will go to Congress, they go to the business leaders. And then the business leaders come and pressure the members of Congress. Actually, this has been said by uh, uh, Marco Rubio publicly and mm. Christmas publicly. So I, I suspect that some of the Democratic members of the United States Congress have been somewhat uh, quiet Nancy Pelosi, for example, a known uh, uh, advocate for human rights in China, said nothing. Interesting. Interesting theory. Uh, Nuri, when I've argued about Xinjiang, as I often do with my Han Chinese friends in, in Beijing or even here in the United States, I've found it's, it's possible to gain ground when I keep my arguments within certain bounds, like not openly advocating for independence. Uh, when I make the case for instance, that Uyghurs as legal citizens of the PRC should be entitled to the same rights, however limited those rights might be, uh, that, that any Han Chinese person would enjoy in this notionally multi-ethnic state, uh, and that they suffer significant discrimination, for example, not being allowed to take 
airplanes or to stay in hotels. And this is well documented that there's been, you know, uh, significant discrimination against them. Uh, I think I, I can get some, uh, some, some empathy or at least some sympathy, you know, that there's this shared experience of, of a re- repression. Isn't this an approach that you might want to take to try to gain the sympathies of Han Chinese people with that shared experience and, and hope that you might affect some sort of change from within, from within China. I mean, I know it's it's a very imperfect analogy, but I think about the United States in the civil rights movement. And I think the cause was greatly helped by the sympathies of northern whites who got on buses and, and, and rode to the south. Uh, what, if anything, are you doing to try to reach more uh, Han Chinese Two thoughts. Uh, one, um, UHRP has already begun this work. Um, we have a Chinese outreach program. We have a Chinese blog uh, regularly published on the UHRP website. Our target is the Chinese audience who might be sympathetic to the cause. Mm. And then two, I think the the, um, the fair-minded Chinese people start paying attention to a uh, symbolic statements being made by President uh, Lincoln as long as we have slavery, we'll not be a free country. I think the Chinese people need to develop something along the lines of, we cannot be a powerful country as long as we mistreat our own citizens. Right. We have to be judged by how we treat our most vulnerable people, right? Ex- that kind of exactly. thing. Exactly. Right. Uh, I'm paraphrasing, and the concept is, as you uh, pointed out. Um, and also, uh, Chinese people have to be very, very vigilant. Xi Jinping is testing the waters. Our uh, Uyghurs today could be there tomorrow. I, I, it makes me really, really worried. You mean the sort of techno-authoritarian yeah, kind of techni- Orwellian uh, um, surveillance state technologies? Yes. Uh, the DNA and all that stuff? You know, uh, I, I worry that one of these days uh, uh, the Chinese citizens, the Han Chinese citizens, will be subject to the similar type of uh, surveillance and uh, uh, prevented from going to places because of their political affiliation, political thoughts, past writing, travel history, uh, whom they married to, whom they have associated with. Uh, I, I think I think this this whole thing uh, happening to the Uyghurs should be a wake up call, and also the Chinese people should start paying attention to their heart, not to the propaganda by the Chinese government. Well said. Very well said. Nuri Trikal, we want to thank you for taking the time to talk with us about this vitally important issue. And we look forward to following up with you in the future on this. Uh, but before we pack up here, let's do our recommendation segment. Uh, first, I want to remind our listeners that the Seneca podcast is powered by SubChina. Subscribe to SubChina's premium access service and enjoy extra content, including additional newsletters and stories and early ad-free access to this podcast. Seneca is the flagship podcast in an expanding network of podcasts that now includes the Saishin Seneca Business Brief, the Pan Daily Tech Buzz China, and the New Voices podcast. So we're very excited to be adding more shows this month. So keep watch, watching this space. On recommendations, Jeremy, um, why don't you kick us off? What do you have for us this week? I have a, a series of books, well, two books, graphic novels, and they're sort of relevant to the content of today's show. You may know them, uh, Mouse by Art Spiegelman. Uh, oh, yeah, of course. Just yeah, the story essentially of a Jewish family in uh, Hitler's Germany told it's in the form of... M-A-U-S, right, mouse. M-A-U-S, as in German spelling of mouse. Uh, and basically the Jews are mice and the Nazis are cats. And it's uh, a rather extraordinary way of reading about a terrible time of history because, you know, you're looking at something that looks a little bit like a children's book, but it's telling you about these very, very terrible things and... Uh, terrible things that unfortunately I've been thinking of a lot recently uh, as we've been working on uh, the events in Xinjiang. Thanks, Jeremy. That's great. Nuri, what do you have for us? I have a report and three books to uh, recommend to your audience. The first one is a UHRP report uh, recently uh, released. Uh, the title of that report is The Mass Interment of Uyghurs. We want to be respected as humans. Is this too much to ask? And you can get access to this uh, report in a PDF format at uhrp.org. And then I'd like to uh, recommend uh, three books in light of our today's, uh, today's conversation. The first one is by uh, Professor Ryan Thum, The Sacred Roads of Uyghur History. Right. And then the second one is the, uh, this, this book what tells um, the Uyghur's um, history or Uyghur biography in a historic uh, context. This is very relevant in light of the fact that Global Times just published 
uh, report claiming that the Uyghurs have nothing to do with the Turkic uh, ancestry or Turkic culture. <laughs> so, so this book, well, that ridiculous. was that was the most laughable thing the Global Times has ever re reported, and they've published a number of laughable things. <laughs> and they made a Uyghur uh, uh, so, a Uyghur politician, uh, the mayor of uh, Rumchi. Uh, saying that, uh, <laughs> collaborated by a couple of uh, Uyghur Chinese officials. So this book is an excellent reference for learning about the Uyghur historic biography. Yeah. And then the second book I'd like to recommend to learn about the Uyghurs' uh, transition in different period as far as their social, uh, political, economic life is an excellent book by Professor Gardner Bowden of Indiana University, The Uyghurs, Strangers in Their Own Land. And then finally, uh, my my good friend, our good friend Jim Melward, wrote a book about Eurasia yeah. that explains Uyghurs' uh, relationship to people in Eurasia continent. Eurasian crossroads, right? Yes, yeah. uh, excellent book about uh, history of Xinjiang. Uh, so those three books would be very helpful for your audience to uh, know in a historic and societal and political aspect, but the current. Um, a situation that the UHRP report would be excellent, in addition to the one that you published in SubChina. Yeah, did you? Did you? What did you think of that? It's an excellent. Uh, I, I, my hats off to your uh, researchers uh, who came up with such a comprehensive, fact-based, logical analysis and summary. It has uh, I will been pass on your compliment to Lucas, who who was chiefly responsible. Please for Please do. Uh, it yeah, has thanks, been Nuri. widely circulated on social media. Great. I'm really glad to hear that. Uh, and my my uh, recommendation is a little more frivolous, but um, it's the album Harry Belafonte live at Carnegie Hall. Harry Belafonte, oh, of course, nice. was he was he was a, a an ardent champion of civil rights in the United States. Uh, my mother had a huge crush on him uh, when I was a child, and we always listened to this record. Uh, it was recorded in 1959. I just actually got a copy of it in, in an used record shop in Fargo, North Dakota on vinyl. It's a, a pristine. It's an absolutely perfect copy. Uh, it's so much fun. I was at a sort of sing-along party at my friend's house uh, in, in Madison, Wisconsin, and there was another guy there who knew this album, and we started busting out all these crazy old so songs from Harry Belafonte, and, you know, to, to the delight of, of everyone there. Uh, Harry, Belaf Harry Belafonte live at Carnegie Hall. It's just a great record. He's a, a beautiful voice. The song selection is amazing. You know, for fun for all ages. Anyway, Nuri, thank you once again. It was just what what a pleasure it was, and, and an honor to meet you. Um, and uh, and we hope to, to talk to you again soon. Thank you very much for having me on your show again. Thank you, Jeremy. I appreciate the thanks, questions. Nuri. Jeremy, great talking to you as always, man. Likewise. The Cynical Podcast is powered by SubChina and is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn and edited by me. Drop us an email at Seneca at SubChina.com, follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at, at SubChina News, and make sure to check out our other podcasts, the Tyson Seneca Business Brief, the Pan Daily Tech Buzz China, and New Voices. More shows coming soon. Watch the space. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next week. Take care.